dismiss out the back with this melody. If you have older children or you yourself want something, uh, there are activities on that back table that you are free to grab and take with you to your seat. Uh, there's also a sermon uh, notes designed for your children that goes along uh, with the sermon. Uh, so this week, we are uh, transitioning away from our series on the Exodus, but we won't be gone for long. Uh, we will pick back up in the Exodus in the latter half of August, and we're going to allow that book in the book of Joshua to prepare us and lead us as we celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness to our church over these past five years. If you want to put it on your calendar, uh, October 9th will represent five years uh, of our church, and so we're going to be celebrating our five-year anniversary on that date. And these two books, the Exodus and Joshua, uh, will prepare us to celebrate and remember God's goodness. So for the next six or seven weeks, we're going to spend some time just looking at uh, Jesus' teachings in the parables. Um, and I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I think the parables are some of my favorite stories to study and look at because uh, they reveal such deep and great truths about the kingdom of God. If you're not familiar with the parables, uh, these are stories that Jesus told, uh, and these stories always had a point. They always had a purpose and desire to invoke a response from his audience. Uh, Dr. Mike Heikendall was my New Testament professor in seminary and uh, a New Testament scholar, and this is how he defined parables. He said, parables are not intended to be understood as pithy, earthy stories about Jesus from agrarian society. They are stories told to create interest, draw in hearers, and most of all these stories were given to call forth a response from the hearer. They provoke, they appeal, they call for a decision for or against what Jesus has said. So parables, these stories we're, we're going to study aren't just silly anecdotes, but they are powerful stories that call for a response from us as hearers. So as we study these parables over the next few weeks, we're going to seek to understand what is the main point of the story and what response is Jesus calling us to as hearers of the parable. And during this series, we're going to look at some familiar parables that you have, uh, probably have heard before, as well as some that are a little more unfamiliar and uh, some that are a little more confusing. And today we're going to study one of those that is a little more unfamiliar. And it's a parable that's going to challenge us as Americans who are always searching for fairness and equity, right? We desire fairness, sometimes over all things. And, and kids, they get this the most. Kids passionately pursue fairness, especially when they think they are treat, being treated unfairly. You go to any preschool class, you go to any playground, we're about to leave on a car trip today, and I guarantee somebody's going to raise the that's not fair card. Uh, and we adults, we do the same thing. We say it to each other, we say it about others, and we often say it to God. And in this parable, Jesus is going to address that issue head on. If we could somehow grasp and invoke this teaching into our lives that we're going to hear today, it would change everything. But before we get to the parable itself, we have to understand the context in which Jesus is telling this parable. Oftentimes, he, he tells a parable in response to a conversation or a situation that he has been involved in. And this parable is no different. So to understand the context, we have to rewind to Matthew chapter 19, verses 19 through 30. And in that part of the scripture, he has a conversation with the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler was, as his name implies, a young, successful, morally upright community leader. He had it all, money, power, good looks. He was the guy that everyone wanted to be. And so one afternoon, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus this question. He says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? This is the question that so many ask. What do I have to do to go to heaven? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? 
You have to hand it to him. He, he at least realizes that his riches and his prestige and his success are no good if in the end he falls short of heaven, of eternal life. But the problem is the whole basis of his question is wrong. He says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? But the whole of the Bible clearly tells us that there is nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life. If there was something that we could do on our own, there would have been no need for Jesus to come to earth and die and pay the penalty of our sins. So instead of doing more, you just have to admit that there's nothing you can do and give up control of your life to Jesus so that he can do it for you. We all, like the rich young ruler, we have to come to this point and admit that our riches, whether monetary or spiritual, are ultimately worthless before God. We must receive eternal life. God's favor is an undeserved gift of grace. Well, that's what Jesus tells this rich young man, and sadly, he walks away because his possessions were just too many and his sense of worthiness too great that he couldn't humble himself and let those things go. And so that's the context, the, the truth revealed that there's nothing we can do on our own to be forgiven of sins. That's the context from which we get this parable. So we're in Matthew chapter 20. We're starting at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 16, and we're going to read it together as we start. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard to work. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. So he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and they each received a denarius. So when those who, who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and that you are indeed generous. God, we thank you for the incredible grace that we have experienced in our life if we know you. And God, I pray that as we unpack this parable that you would reveal uh, just the, the magnitude of your grace in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus more on you and your grace than on us and our merit. God, may we leave here uh, just reminded of how good you are and how good you've been to us. They would be reminded of our salvation and the grace we've experienced. God, we, we, we leave here uh, just, just empowered by you to be generous, to be compassionate, and to love others. God, we love you. 
We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. So now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that parable, I'm, I'm a little frustrated. My, my fairness red flag has been raised. But Jesus is revealing a powerful truth to us, and especially to us that have been Christians for a long time. And so we're going to unpack this together. So the story begins with a landowner going out early in the morning to hire workers for a day's labor. During those days, a typical workday was 12 hours and would run from 6 a.m. to 6, 6 p.m. And this concept of picking up workers for a day is, is kind of foreign, a foreign concept to us, but was commonplace then and, and still is commonplace in some communities across the U.S. I grew up in Portland, uh, Oregon, and, and everyone knew that if you needed to hire a worker for the day, you just went to the intersection of MLK and I-84, and there would be men standing there waiting for a job for the day. Right, The Home Depot on 300 South in Salt Lake, it seems to have this working for it as well. And so the landowner, he goes and he hires men for the day and he agrees on a wage for them. Then they head back to the vineyard and they begin their day for work. At around 9 o'clock in the morning, the landowner goes out again and he hires another batch of workers. But this time there's a difference. And the thing here to notice is that these later workers, they go with the master with no agreement on a wage. They just believe the master's promise to take good care of them. The landowner does this again at noon, 3 and 5 p.m. And again, no contract is established with these latter workers. Only the first guys had agreed upon a wage. Everyone else just trusts in the goodness of the master. And they believe in his promise to take good care of them. From there, we pick up in verse 8 and we get to the heart of the parable. Jesus says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired uh, about f- at about five in the afternoon come, and they received one denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. So here's what's happening. You can kind of visualize this. The master lines them up with the, the most recently hired on this side, the front of the line, and the earliest workers at the back. The landowner opens up his bag of coins and says, okay, 5 p.m., guys, where are you? They step forward, and the master says to them, I told you I'd take care of you, didn't I? He says, so here's a denarius for you and a denarius for you, and, and you get a denarius, and you get a denarius all the way down the line. And he starts working his way down this line. And those guys that have been working all day are at the end of the line, but they can see and they can hear what is happening, and they're starting to get excited, right? They're like, wow, they get a denarius an hour. That's crazy generous. That means I'm going to be getting, and they start counting on their fingers and their toes, how much they expect to be paid. But then it gets to them, and he says, in a denarius for each of you. That's that's the wage they had agreed upon. But they say, wait, that's not fair. We're getting the same thing they got. Now, we're not going to raise our hands, but how many of you join them and say, wait, 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 that is not fair. Well, the parable continues with the landowner responding to their grumbling. He says, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? When the master said that, I would imagine some of them probably thought, well, yes, actually, I do begrudge you and your generosity. And they say, I'd rather have justice. I understand justice. Justice is quantifiable. It's predictable. It is comfortable. I want to deserve what I get and get what I deserve. 
You can imagine them saying, we want justice. We want fairness. And at first glance, we sympathize with that. But that's where I would imagine Jesus kind of gets a wry smile and we get to the main point of his message. Do we really want justice? Do we really want to talk, what we, talk about what we deserve? Jesus says, I don't think you want to go down that route when it comes to the kingdom of God. And that leads to our first point, and that is, do we desire justice, fairness, or do we desire grace when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus? We often claim we want justice, but the last thing we want when it comes to the kingdom of God and our relationship with Jesus is justice. We instead desperately want and need grace in our lives. Because you see, if we zoom out from this parable to the gospel, to the New Testament, and to the Bible, we see that justice for us is death because of our sin and wrongdoing. But the gift of grace through Jesus is forgiveness and eternal life. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages or the consequences of yours and my sin is death. So if we're going to get real about it, that's what we each deserve. We deserve, the Bible says, death apart from God in hell. That's what our lives have earned for us apart from Jesus. And anything more than that is sheer grace and mercy. And what Jesus is saying to us and to the crowd is that it is better to have a relationship with the master where you go with him, where you go trusting in his goodness and his promises to take care of us, where we go trusting in his grace. It's better to have a grace-filled relationship with God than an Old Testament contract where we always come up short. When you think about the gospel, the reality is that Jesus is the one that worked all day. He's the one that gave his life on our behalf, and we did nothing to earn our forgiveness and salvation. We are all the 11th hour guy inheriting the reward of Jesus. Yet we love to grumble and believe the lie that we somehow earned our forgiveness and are more deserving than others. But again, the reality is that the wage of our sin, our wrongdoing is death, and Jesus takes that to the cross on our behalf. Our punishment, our consequences for the way we live our life is put on Jesus. Justice for us is death. It is hell, but grace is given through Jesus. And his wages, his righteousness, his reward for the way he lived his life is given to us. He lived a perfect life and then died the sinner's death. He was beaten and whipped and crucified for my sin. Not his sin, but our sin. And when we experience Jesus, we, by contrast, we reap the reward of his righteousness. And so we don't want justice when it comes to the kingdom of God, but we instead desperately need grace, and we should relish in the grace that is shown to us and is shown to others. Our life should extend grace and be full of gratitude for the grace shown to us. But how often, as we said, do we begin to believe the lie that we are righteous on our own? And we begin to grumble just like these workers who were hired early in the morning. John MacArthur summed up the main point of the parable by saying, Since sinners, which is all of us, you and me, are all unworthy, and the riches of God's grace inexhaustible, all believers receive an infinite and eternal share of his mercy and kindness, though no one really deserves it. Yet despite the lavish gift of forgiveness and eternal life that all believers have given, a gift that is not due to our works, but instead only due to Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection for the grave. 
We have done nothing to deserve it. Yet we still somehow begin to feel entitled. And we question and judge others and judge God and his goodness. Grace is what we've been given. The Bible tells us we have, no, we have no room to grumble because God has given us far more than we deserve. And his point is that you don't, you don't want to be in a contract relationship with God. You don't want to receive what you deserve. But we want grace. We want to go with the master and receive his grace like the 11th hour guys did. J.D. Greer said this passage, but so many of our spiritual problems and so much of our spiritual unrest comes from this contract mentality we have with God. Where we believe that God owes us something and we want him to give us what we deserve. And so he goes on a list where this contract mentality creeps into our life and affects our relationship with God and outlook on life. And that's what we're going to look at for the rest of this sermon And so he gives, uh, so the question we have to answer, are we in a contract or grace-filled relationship with Jesus? And so he gives three signs and three questions that we are in a contract relationship with God. And the first sign that we are in a contract relationship with God is bitterness in our hearts. And the diagnostic question he gives is this, am I bitter because God has withheld some blessing from me that I think I deserve? The faithful workers that have been there since daybreak are bitter because they didn't get more than those uh, that came later in the day. But what Jesus is saying is that everything I have given you is a gift. And everything beyond death and hell uh, which you deserve is a gift from me. But often we say, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Or we say, God, we've been so good. Why didn't I get this or that? Or we say, God, I I have given so much to you. Why didn't I get that? Or we talk about trials as if we don't deserve anything bad to ever happen to us. But the reality is that any blessing or good thing we receive in this life, and certainly our salvation, is far more than anything we deserve. The reality is that if all Jesus did for us is save us from hell, and then everything else was taken away from us, we would have to consider ourselves recipients of incalculable Levels of grace. Grace that we in no way deserved. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says it this way. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on the world, but on what is unseen. Since what, we is, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul understood the extravagant grace he had been shown. And he considered any suffering here on earth. Just a preparation for what lied ahead. And our bitterness goes away. The comparisons go away with others when we grasp and we look at the grace we have been given. Bitterness gives way to gratitude when we focus on the lavish, incalculable grace and blessings we've been given through Jesus. When we can lift our eyes to Jesus and allow him to shape our perspective, it changes everything. Everyone had been paid lavishly by the master. The first workers were given a denarii that they agreed to. But when their eyes slipped to others instead of the master, they lost their gratitude. In the same way, when we start to say, start to think and say things like, God, you owe me. Then we slip into that contractual relationship and bitterness takes over our lives. So bitterness is the first sign that we have slipped into a contractual relationship with God. Where we say, God, you owe me. The next sign of a contractual relationship with God that Greer looks at is jealousy. 
And the question, the diagnostic question for jealousy is this. Am I jealous of good things that others have that I want? And we're not going to raise hands, but how many of us have looked at others and we've become jealous of what they have because we want it and because we deem ourselves more righteous or worthy of what they have? In the story, the first workers are jealous of what the latter workers got because they thought they were more deserving than them, even though they had been paid exactly what they agreed upon. How often do we look around and, and ask questions like, God, why did they get that job? God, why did they get married and not me? God, why did you give them kids so quickly and I'm struggling? God, why are they so healthy and I'm so sickly? Why did God bless them with money and not me? And what we're saying is that I deserve those things more than they do. I'm a better Christian. I am more righteous than they are. And when we do that, we have slipped back into a contractual relationship with God. And our gratitude disappears. The reality is every good thing we have been given is due to God's grace. And God has promised to take care of us and he has proven himself trustworthy. Proverbs 23, 17 through 18 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. Jesus says to us, follow me and trust me and I will take care of you. But when we slip into that contractual relationship with God, jealousy enters our life. I think there's two things at the root of that jealousy. If we are jealous, we first of all don't believe in the goodness that God has promised us. We don't believe in his promise to take care of us. And then secondly, we are filled with foolish pride that believes God owes us anything. Tim Keller says, if Jesus didn't complain when he received a life infinitely worse than he deserved... How can I complain while I experience a life infinitely better than I deserve? Jesus didn't deserve death. I did. But he goes to the cross on my behalf and he doesn't begrudge it. We don't deserve the salvation we receive through his suffering, but he does not begrudge that either. Why then would we be jealous of the good things and the blessings that others receive? We have to grasp that we have been given more than we deserve, and we have to grasp the blessings of this life aren't owed to us. Greer said it like this, realizing that the blessings of your life aren't owed to you but are gifts of grace will change how you look at them. It will turn a person of jealousy and resentment into a person of gratitude and sharing. I heard this story, and I think I've shared it before, but I love it because it so illustrates this point. But it's a story of a mom with preschoolers and young children. And she was talking about how she had this one day a week where all of her children were either at school or with dad or some activity. And every week there was this perfect window once a week where she was childless for a morning. And during this morning, each week, she would go to her favorite coffee shop and then her favorite bakery afterwards. And she would uh, get coffee and cookies and she would treat herself. Right, many of you have young children, or you remember those days, and you can relate to how special those moments are. Well, one of those mornings, she went to the coffee shop and then to the bakery, and she bought a bag of those little warm cookies, and she sat down to enjoy them. But it was one of those days where it was so busy, and so she was forced to sit at the bar next to a man. And she was sitting there, and she was enjoying her cookies, and the aforementioned man reached over and grabbed one of her cookies from her bag and ate it. She glared at the man, 
But he ate the cookie without a thank you or an acknowledgement of her. A couple minutes later, he reached over. He did the same thing again. He grabbed a cookie and he ate it. Well, at this point, she was getting frustrated, so she did what any uh, person would do. She started eating those delicious warm cookies two at a time to make sure she got most of them. Well, it got to the point there was only one cookie left, and the man had the nerve to reach over and grab the last cookie from her bag. He broke the cookie in two, and he gave half of the cookie back to the lady. Well, at this point, she had had enough, so she took the half cookie. She sighed, and she stormed out of the bakery. She was furious that this man had eaten her cookies. She was furious he had not said thank you. She was furious that he had violated her precious kid-free morning. And so she left the bakery and she went to her car. And as she looked into her purse to fish out the keys, she saw the full bag of cookies she had purchased. You see, the man hadn't been stealing her cookies, but instead he had been graciously sharing his cookies with her. That's the reality. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve any blessing in this lifetime. But instead, those are all good gifts we've been given by God. So often we get in our mind that we deserve things, but we deserve nothing. And every good thing has been purchased and given to us by God, just as every cookie this woman enjoyed had been purchased by the man next to her. Blessings don't belong to us. They are bought by the blood of Jesus. They are gifts of his grace. And when our eyes shift from others in the belief that God owes us to the truth that God has given us so much more than we deserve and that he is trustworthy to provide for us, that he is good, when we shift our eyes to him, when we shift like that, we shift from jealousy to thankfulness and contentment. So lift your eyes to Jesus. Lift your eyes from others and the things you believe you deserve. Last final sign that we have slipped into a contractual relationship with God is, is indifference. And the diagnostic question that Greer asked for indifference is this, am I moved to action by the suffering and the lostness of others? You see, when we believe that, believe that the good things that we are experiencing are due to our good deeds, to our worthiness, and that contractual relationship with God, then it is easy for us to believe that the suffering or lack of faith of others is due to their failures. If we believe that our salvation is due to how good we are, it's natural to believe that the lack of salvation for others is due to their failures. That's what we see in this story. These first workers aren't thinking about those other guys or the fact that they have families at home and they need to provide for. They're just thinking, you didn't work like I did, so you don't deserve the good things like I do. Look at verse 6 in the master's dialogue with the 5 o'clock workers. About 5 in the afternoon, he went out and found others still uh, standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Verse 7, they said, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. I love this point. Because as Americans, our first instinct is to think of the 5 o'clock workers as lazy. Because they didn't join the work party at 6 in the morning. But when the master asked them why they are not working, it's not because they're lazy, but because they were never afforded the opportunity to work. And when we understand that our blessings aren't because of anything special about us or any goodness or worthiness in us, but they are instead blessings of abundance from God, then it gives us compassion for others. Others who don't have what we have. Think about my life. 
When I think about the blessings I have, there are, there are no blessings that, that I did anything to deserve. I did nothing to deserve the blessing of being born into a great family with a mom and a dad that loved me unconditionally. A mom and dad that loved the Lord and took me to church and provided for me. I did nothing to, de- to deserve to, the blessing of going to a church that preached the gospel, that told me about Jesus and shared with me how to follow him. Right, it's the 4th of July. I did nothing to deserve to be born in America with freedom and privilege and opportunity that most of the world will never know and experience. I did nothing to deserve the opportunities, the talents, and gifts that God has given me. You see, often those that don't know Jesus are just waiting for someone to tell them, to invite them, to afford them the opportunity to know his grace. They didn't have the privileges and opportunities that I had. Right? I didn't experience those things because I was worthier than others. God in his grace has given me and he has given you opportunities and privileges far beyond what we deserve. It's all a gift, not due to our merit. And when we understand the abundance we have been given, then out of gratitude we pour those gifts back as an offering to God. And we take them and his message to those without blessings, without those blessings. Greer said it like this. He said, justice, biblically speaking, is not just not, just not cheating people. It is leveraging whatever your position of strength you have for the empowerment of others. Justice is our mindset usually means stopping the oppressor, but biblically speaking, justice is also helping to lift up the oppressed. When we understand the magnitude and the blessing that salvation is, then we can't help but share it with others. Paul in Romans 1.14 says he is obligated to both the Jews and the non-Jews to share the gospel with them. Because of the blessing he has been given, he is under obligation to share it with everyone he can. And when we grasp what we have been given, then we become obligated to share the hope and love with others around us. In our indifference to the suffering, the lack of hope, the lack of salvation that those around us are experiencing, instead turns to compassion for them and an urgency to share the hope of Jesus with them. We see in this passage the master again, I love this, he again and again returns to the marketplace. He returns looking in all corners for those that are willing to return to his service. He doesn't just go once, but he goes again and again. And still today, Jesus is calling those all around us, in big cities and small towns, in distant lands, and here in Green River. He is calling those to come and follow him. He is searching near and far for workers, sons and daughters, for those willing to give up all to follow him. A parable we'll look at in the future says he will lead the 99 to find the one. He is searching with urgency again and again. And so the question is, are we overwhelmed with gratitude for our salvation? Are we joining him? Are we joining him to search for others, to share his hope with others? Are we indifferent to his cause and indifferent to what a life without Jesus means for those around us? When you see those, when you see that you don't deserve salvation and blessings, when you see that Jesus did all the work and you got all the blessings, it will produce in you a generous spirit towards others and a desire to share his good news with others. It will help you to go from indifferent to generous. When we leave a contractual relationship with God behind and we embrace his goodness, his blessing, his forgiveness, and embrace that it is all a gift from him, then it changes everything. 
When we do that, our bitterness is replaced with gratitude. Our jealousy is replaced with contentment. And our indifference is replaced with compassion. So if we wrap up uh, today, where do you find yourself in this parable? In just a second, Melinda, she's going to come and play for us. And we're going to take a minute to respond. But where do you find yourself in this story? Maybe you're someone that's been a Christian a long time and you look around and you see these new believers. You see these sinners that might find the grace of God and you feel a little betrayed. You feel like you deserve more. You feel like you deserve better than they do. If that is you and you have that attitude, would you first just humble yourself and repent from your pride and sin? You didn't earn your salvation. You didn't earn your way to God, but it was all God's grace. So would you repent and turn to God and begin praying and giving thanks for all you've been given? Would you allow God to work in your heart and beg him to turn your bitterness to gratitude, your jealousy to contentment, and your indifference to compassion? Instead of being jealous and bitter, my prayer is that you would let go of whatever it is you're holding on to, and that you would be the one that is desperately proclaiming God's goodness and grace that all to, that all, to all that need to experience his forgiveness. My prayer for us as a church is that we might be a church that is not defined by indifference for our community and the lost. That we might be a church that is driven by love and compassion for those around us. And then as a people who have received extravagant grace, we ought to be a people that extend that grace to others. We live in a culture that is much more likely to extend criticism than grace. This week, would you be intentional to extend grace when you perceive someone has wronged you, when you perceive someone has offended you, when someone has undercommunicated with you, when someone has forgot or failed you in your mind, would you intentionally extend grace this week? And then as you do so, be reminded of the grace you've been given. And lastly, maybe you are here and you don't know God, or you've been like this rich young world, maybe you've been trying to work your way towards him. You've been trying to work your way to Jesus, but the Bible says that you can rest and be assured of your eternity if you will follow after him. The Bible says that the result or the wage of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. There is nothing we can do to work our way to him. But Jesus went to the cross and he paid the price of your sin. He died the death you deserved. You just have to accept that gift. He offers you salvation, forgiveness, eternal life if you'll turn and follow him. Just as the master went to the market and he offered an abundant gift to all who followed him, Jesus offers eternal life to you if you will turn and follow after him. So you can pray in your seat, you can ask for his forgiveness, or you can come and talk with me and I'd love to share with you more. But I'm going to pray for us, and after I pray for us, Melinda's going to play, and as she plays, I'd ask you just to bow your head and just to reflect for a minute or two. I'll come and close us a prayer, and then I'll dismiss us. God, we thank you that you are good. God, we thank you that you offer us grace and not justice. God, that you offer us eternal life and not the death that our sin sin has earned for us. So God, first of all, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that has never experienced your forgiveness and your goodness and your grace and your blessing in their life, God, I pray that they would let go of whatever it is they're holding on to. God, that they would turn and they would follow after you. God, I pray if there's anyone here that has questions about what that means, that they would have the, the courage and the strength to ask those questions and to find answers. And God, I pray for many of us here that are followers of you, Lord. I pray that you would lift our eyes from others, that you would lift our eyes from ourselves, and you would lift our eyes to you. 
And God, that you would help us to see the incredible grace we've been shown. The incredible blessings you have bestowed upon us. And God, that we would would give thanks for those. That we would find our, our gratitude in you. Lord, that we would extend compassion and grace to others. Lord, that we would not be indifferent to those that don't have what we have, but instead we would be people that bear that good news, that share that good news with everyone we meet. So God, we thank you that you are a God of goodness, that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of mercy and of forgiveness. And may we rest in that blessing this week. God, we love you and we praise you in your name we pray. God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are kind, that you are gracious to us. May we rest in your grace and your blessings this week, and may we extend those to others. Okay, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, just a few announcements. First of all, uh, if you're new to Living Hope Church, there should be a welcome card that looks like this. Uh, if you put that, if you fill that out and put that in the box in the back, uh, we'd appreciate it. That's also you can place your tithes and your offerings if you do consider this your uh, church home. Uh, in terms of announcements, uh, we have Kids Camp on Casper Mountain. That is in two weeks. Uh, and if you are going to that, we will leave here from the church that Monday morning, the 11th at 8 a.m. Um, if you have questions about that or you need uh, any information on that, come and see me and I'll have that for you. Uh, Summit Youth Camp was two weeks later, July 25th to the 30th. If you have questions about that, you can see me or you can see Mr. Justin right there. Uh, we have uh, registration forms and any other uh, answers the questions you might have, uh, but see us. Uh, we have Vacation Bible School coming up here at Living Hope Church, August 1st to the 4th. Uh, if you are interested in helping with that, see Melody. Melody's the one uh, that was leading worship and they went down with the kids. Uh, we're going to have a VBS meeting July 17th at 4 o'clock here at the church. Uh, she wrote me a note said we still need uh, we still need helpers, we still need teachers, we still need people to help with registration and snacks. Uh, so if you're uh, interested in helping even for a day or two that week, see her and she will help you uh, get plugged in. Um, also, we're working on the child care schedule for the next few months. Uh, if you are not on that or would like to help with that, uh, you can see Melody as well as she's putting that together. Uh, thank you so much for being here uh, this week. We hope you have an awesome 4th of July tomorrow. Uh, stay safe, and we hope to see you again next week. You are dismissed. <laughs>